Well, good morning. My name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to have you with us this morning. We've been going through a, a marriage series called Better Together. And part of the reason we entitled it that is because our marriage covenant, our marriage agreement is not merely with our spouse, but it's also between the Lord and us that he promises and is faithful to make us one as a collective unit to show his unity and kindness to the world around us. I went on a little personal retreat to Lanier Theological Library on Friday, just kind of reflecting on life, ministry, calling, etc. And um, the one thing that I just kept being um, stirred with is the fact that um, for those of you who follow Jesus Christ, myself included, it's time for us to grow up. Okay? And I'm not saying just, you know, not, not act childish and, and things like that. I'm saying in relationships, in marriage, with our kids. Because I don't know about many of you who are near my age. I turned 40 in June. No, no shame in my game for that. I'm glad I'm a pastor. People start taking you more seriously the older you get. So I don't necessarily mind that. But as I reflect on my life, I realize there's still pockets and areas of maturity that need to happen in me. And, and I don't know about you guys, but I just feel like a balding high schooler sometimes. Ladies, hopefully that's not your scenario, but I know for some of us guys, like in many ways, in, in different, when, when pockets of my own immaturity comes up, I realize like, man, I should be wearing a letter jacket right now. You know, because it just, man, there's just immaturity. And one of the passages the Lord brought to me, I, I spoke on 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, because if you don't do that in a marriage um, series, you're, you're kind of in sin or something, um, right? Because you have to talk through that passage. But I went back and I was just slowly enjoying 1 Corinthians 13 completely this past week. And I want to, I as we move into talking about conflict in marriage and how to attack conflict in a way that honors Jesus, because conflict that's handled, handled well, it's honoring to God. Because um, marriages that have never experienced any conflict typically also end in divorce. So conflict is not an indicator of your marriage going down in flames. How you handle it can be destructive. And so I want to lay this foundation for us as followers of Jesus, as brothers and sisters in Christ, but also for um, the concept of marriage. And if you're not yet married or not currently married or don't intend to be married or have been married, this is still applicable to you. There's not a slide for this, so there's Bibles around you. We're in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but this, we just need to build some context around this idea of godly love so that we can then build into what it looks like to then be um, joyfully married in the midst of conflict. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in tongues of men and, and, and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, 
The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Our culture loves to bring definition of love. What is love? What is love? What is love? But this type of love is proactive. It's a verb. It speaks of actions that are compelled from this place of love. It's not just merely a sentiment or a feeling, a come and go type of feeling. It is a, it is a deep abiding love. And the reason we are able then to experience this type of love is because the type of love that God has given to us proactively and consequentially through his son Jesus And, and I'm, I'm preaching this to myself. I want you to know that. I'm, I'm, I'm laying myself in front of you saying, like, I still have to mature in these things. So I'm not sitting here like, guys, I had this figured out. I've noticed you're wrong in the way. No, no, no. I'm saying, like, I need to grow up in the way I love. Some of the patterns and habits that I observed growing up, I love my parents, and I'm grateful for the years that they've invested in my life, but I did not learn the most healthy, loving patterns. My father is a litigator, an attorney, he fights to win. My mother fights to be approved. Well, she used to. And so I've got a mix of both in me. And, and I always tease and say, well, hey, when I'm doing premarital counseling, I say, right, before you're married, it's a lot of marketing and sales, isn't it? Right? You put your best foot forward. You put yourself together. You close the door when you use the restroom. All those different things. Still close the door. Just... That's a free pastoral tip. Just close it. But this idea of love, this, this, this consequence of love, is like you can do all the right things, but if, if it's not motivated by a sacrificial, enduring, believing, hoping love, it's such a clanging symbol. Symbols used well are a beautiful instrument. If you've ever heard somebody go crazy with a stick on a symbol, like a guitar center, it raises up very quickly a homicidal desire. It is, it's piercing and awful and offensive. And that's what he's saying. Even if you're doing the right things under the wrong pretense, it's not helpful, it's harmful. When it talks about love being patient and kind, it doesn't, it's not arrogant or rude. It does not envy or boast. It does not rejoice in wrong suffered. It's not, it's not given applause when we're doing sinful things. But at the same time, he follows it up with that. He doesn't say, so I'm going to take my ball and go home. What does it say it does? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He goes on to say, when I was a child, I thought like a child. And so one of the things this week that I've been trying to pay attention to is when I have been wrong. I lost count. I don't like focusing on when I've been wrong because it makes me aware of how wrong I can be. Now, most of them are micro wrong, like, hey, I shouldn't have turned right onto 1488 to get into Kroger, like when I was with Steph yesterday. I thought it would be faster. It was not. And it feels so good, though, to say, I was wrong. And it probably feels so good for your spouse to say, yes, you were. But this concept of love and enduring love 
has to be this foundation, and we, we must allow God's word and God himself to be who de- defines love so that then we can understand whether we're hitting the mark or we're missing it. Patience, kindness. At the end of the day, the foundation is love. God is love. Love is not God. And so when we talk about having conflict in marriage, and beginning in the, the, nuclear, the nuclear family, starting with, with each other's spouse, with our children, with our neighbors, with our friends, in our church, in ministry or whatever, like at work, we must enter into that knowing that we're completely loved even when we can be completely wrong. So your being loved is not fully rooted on being right. You have been made right if you're a follower of Jesus Christ by his blood, his death. You've been restored to God by his resurrection. Therefore, your behavior in either being right or wrong isn't what makes the final determination of God's approval of you. But we have a tendency when someone has been wrong, including our spouse, to not only hold it against them, but allow that to build a wedge between us. But Jesus is honored when the result of our conflict is intimacy and unity, not division. When intimacy and unity, a sharpening takes place, the Lord is honored. And so before we continue on this trek into conflict, because no one likes talking about it, and again, like I said, if you have no conflict in your marriage, I'm equally concerned for you as those who have a lot of conflict. Because one party's not saying what they think. I'm being awkwardly quiet for a minute just to let that sink in. Because the passive person's like, please just move on. Please don't sit there. And so, there's this word that many of us are not very good at called friendship. And one of the key elements in marriage is friendship. That's not what the romantic comedies teach. They teach it's all erotic passion, love, and the music rises and the lights fall, and it feels just so energetic all the time, all the intimacy that happens. And then the fights are devastating and broken. But really, the number one key is friendship. When I, when I talk to students who like someone else, I say, Build a solid friendship. Why? If you're a Christian, because that's your brother or sister in Christ. They're not your own. They're not yours. Even if y'all are going together, they're not yours. If you're in marriage, you're covenanted together. They're still belonging to God. They're still your brother or sister in Christ, but you're in a covenant of life-sacrificing love. Friendship is an essential foundation for a healthy marriage, and Proverbs 27 verses 5 through 10 breaks that down to like, what does this really look like? And it says this, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Like a bird that strays from its nest is a man who strays from his home. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. A faithful friend loves by correcting, by rebuking. I used to feel embarrassed when Steph would correct me on things she was right about. I would feel embarrassed. 
Like that, that's the best emotion I could say. I would feel embarrassed by it. And then when she was wrong, I would feel charged to attack. So I had embarrassment or anger and pride. I was acting like a fool, and I talked about it last week. Anybody here still act like a fool? See some honest... My buddy Matt's like... Okay, so if you've got it all figured out and you're perfect, you're going to teach a workshop. Just come find me afterwards. Right? We, we, our, that's, our, that's our reaction, right? That's our habit is to be foolish. But if a friend who loves you, it's better for them to come and say, like, you have something in your teeth than for you to walk around all day, like, showing everybody your lunch. But we get like, oh, 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 I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But the more we try to keep this facade of perfection and the more we try to go and act like we don't mess up, that is exhausting. It's exhausting for you as a human. It's exhausting for those around you who see the truth. A faithful friend loves by rebuking and correcting, but that's not all they do. I was a safety patrol in fifth grade at Cummings Elementary School. I had an orange sash and a notebook with authority. Three warnings of walking and not riding your bike, and then I could write you up. The sad thing was there wasn't very uh, good punishment for getting written up. Anybody else a safety patrol here? Did y'all even have those? Some of you had them? Yeah, some of you like, yeah. You can, you can now, if it's not my job to care, I don't, but when it was my job to care, I cared. I chased a kid down off school property on a bike, and then he threatened to fight me until he realized I was much bigger than him when he got off his bike. I wrote him up for riding his bike. I turned that note thing in, and I was hoping they would crucify the kid. He got a strong talking to, and that was it. I don't even think he had to sit out recess. We love being right. Don't you love being right? Don't you love being proven right? I do. I love being right. I love proving people wrong. But the heart behind that is sinful and misguided. When I'm, when I'm looking to be right to elevate myself and to lower someone else, that's not love. That's a loud symbol. And when you're fighting with your spouse or fighting with someone else and you are right and you're nailing how right you are, it's a loud clanging symbol. I mean, can you imagine like getting a crash symbol and walking around your house and then whenever your spouse is like not being loved and you start clanging it? Half of you would be killed. Like this is Texas. Y'all are well armed. You're clanging a symbol. It's like I had enough. It's annoying. And so we wonder why our spouse doesn't respond with, you know what? You're right. I'm so wrong. Clang, clang, clang. But this proverb also teaches us that wise counsel from a friend is as sweet as honey. When there's that foundation of trust, when there is love, and the person is trying to come alongside and understand when your spouse is sitting there with you, not against you, saying, this is an issue, that pattern, that belief, that behavior, that spending, that consuming is a problem that we need to deal with. We need to deal with. 
Yes, I'm offended, but I'm more concerned about your soul before a holy God than I am about you being right with me. See, we forget that, Christians. We're more concerned about our boundaries being violated than we are about sinners before an angry God towards sin. The only hope to remedy that anger before a holy God is his son, Christ Jesus, not your anger. Your anger and your wrath does not refine and save a soul. God's wrath poured out on the person of Jesus Christ on the cross is the only hope and remedy. And so when we forget that element of the gospel, and hear me, I'm not saying we don't feel offended or we don't feel hurt, but the more we're able to mature in that understanding that we, we come with a more concern for souls than we care about our rights being violated, the more we lean into that, the more we grow up in that, the more we bear things and love well. The number one challenge your spouse is facing isn't just bad behavior, it's unbelief. As Martin Luther says, sin is nothing more than unbelief in the innermost being. You're believing lies about this life or about God and not believing truth. And a friend comes along and says, Let me, tell me what you're thinking. Why are you thinking that? Where are you going with that? And so the more Steph and I have matured and been guided and pastored and coached to seeking understanding more than seeking victory, the more we have been united even through very hard situations. Conflict is not what's going to destroy your marriage. Conflict handled poorly will. The last thing we see in verse 10 is this idea of staying close to our good friends, keeping them tight and near, initiating and engaging. Listen, if you are not proactively cultivating your relationship with your spouse, you are missing a foundational principle in your life. If you're not pursuing relationship with Christ, relationship with each other, your other relationships are going to be out of whack. We deal with a lot of guys who have strayed from their marriage either through pornography on, on, the, on computers or devices or with other people. We've had a few ladies who struggle with that, but we've had a lot of ladies who have taken their, their husband's emotional disengagement as permission to have inappropriate emotional relationships even with their girlfriends because their husband's not engaging emotionally and they're not willing to say anything or get help for that. And so that's still unfaithful. Even if it doesn't turn sensual, it's still giving emotion and affection to places and things that are covenantally out of whack. I know some of you are like, huh? If you're calling your mom or your girlfriend ladies to talk more about your problems in your marriage than you're talking with your spouse, that's a problem. Guys, if you're going to your guy friends and complaining about your wife instead of going to sit with your wife or seeking counsel, that's a problem. That doesn't build trust, it diminishes it. It's okay if you say, hey, I don't know how to start this conversation or I need help starting it. There's help for that. But to, to ongoingly harbor these resentment isn't love and it's not helpful. In the Bible, we see two primary causes of conflict. The first one we see is we are made differently. We're not, we're not all the same united and think the same and feel the same. And for some people who feel strongly right about how they are and how they think, that's offensive. So either you're offended that they don't think the same way or you're condescending. You're like, I, I look down on you. And I've seen that a lot in marriages where one spouse feels like the other spouse is looking down on them, doesn't think they're as smart or as engaged 
or as witty or as funny. Like they, after they're married and, and, and like the, the allure goes away, then all of a sudden they're just kind of burned out and like, eh, it is what it is. He's just kind of stupid. Some of you are like, I don't say that. Do you think it? As John, as John writes in John 1.3, he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. When we understand and start celebrating our differences, we're celebrating our creator. Because your spouse is created in the image of God. Yes, sin has affected him or her, but they are created in the image of God. And they're being redeemed through Christ to restored image of God. And just because they don't think like you, act like you, believe everything like you, doesn't mean you're better. We're made differently. And so one of the ways that we deal with this is we begin to identify, like, I'm viewing their differences. Now, if they're like, I enjoy smoking drugs or doing something harmful or destructive, then you're like, that's wrong. That's hurting you. Like, if, you're, if your spouse is like utilizing and abusing heroin, that's sin against God and harmful to them. It's okay to say, look, that's, that's wrong. That's hurting you. It's hurting us. It's destroying our intimacy. It's destroying our trust. So I'm not saying like we just get along with our differences. I'm saying preferential difference doesn't mean you're better. And even when you're right, how you go about being right needs to be mindful. You need to be helpful in how you're being right. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, we come alongside, we bear with, we long suffer, we engage. I know um, Stephanie and I, we're a little different. I know several of you know us pretty well. The way we think, the way we act, the way we process, we have a lot of things in common and we have a lot of personality differences, habit differences, gifting differences, um, and one of the things that we learned over the last five, six years or so is to grow in our appreciation for those differences and see how God has wired those things to unify us. Now, that, that is very important in marriage. It's very important with your children. But it's also important at work, with friendships, with other family members. Is the, one of the ways we worship and give value to God is by celebrating the differences in what God has created. And part of what God has created is your spouse, and if they were exactly like you, most of us would be in big trouble. If your spouse was, and some of you are just like your spouse. You're like, we're exactly alike. As long as you have some healthy conflict, then all right. But if you're like, we agree on everything, blah, 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 then let me ask you, are you being honest? But by and large, most married couples that I counsel and have worked with have some similarities and commonalities, but they have some unique differences as well. And some of those differences are annoying. Some of you are like, amen, him, right? You know, But the more that we start coming back to the root of our creator, our creator made this person. If, if our spouse is following Jesus, is redeeming this person, then we can begin thinking differently and having better habits of responding with appreciation to the change in habits and behavior and, and differences and sharpening each other, but also celebrating those differences. And so when you start acknowledging those differences with this idea of unity, then we start coming alongside saying, how can our differences cause difficulty? And how can then we leverage our differences 
for more glory of God to be enjoyed in our home? How can we celebrate our differences, unify together, and use our strengths and weaknesses uh, in compatibility with each other? How do we complement each other in marriage? How do we come alongside? Stephanie is detail-oriented. She can knock things out, boom, put a whole process and thought process together, take care of projects, everything else. I'm a big-picture guy, and I'll execute at the end, but like, give me a step-by-step. Like, I remember a couple years ago, I would wake up and help get ready for CC, and every week, classical conversations, the school thing she does, I would go to her and say, so what do you need me to do again? And she's like, you've been doing it for 12 weeks. You've been, I mean, it's kind of like my brain in that is like Etch-a-Sketch. It's like we draw a pretty picture, the, the task is over, <laughs> done. I, I literally don't remember. And so I went with her, it was super romantic, one morning with an index card and a pen, and I was like, tell me everything I need to do. She's like, you have to write it down. I was like, shh, 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 shh. And I wrote it down, and I created a system that I still have in my office, and I obey that system every day every Tuesday. I haven't had to ask again. So one of the ways I honored her was realizing that, okay, I gotta remember that stuff, and part of me remembering it is having a written down system, because for whatever reason, selfishness or whatever, whatever, sin or just humanity, I don't remember. And so I wrote it down. And how many fights have we been in since then about that? No fights about that. So I should probably make a process about everything and that will, so write that down. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and I would be honest with your spouse and admit where these differences are challenging. How, how, look, when you do blank, it makes me feel like you're thinking this. And you either own it and say, I am, I'm sorry, forgive me. Or you're saying like, I'm just not thinking about that at all. And so a lot of times what I find underneath conflict is lack of consideration, or at least experience lack of consideration. And so some of us need to be reminded of what's important for us to have considered. Whether it's about money, whether it's about intimacy, whether it's about relationships, whether it's about time, whether it's about meals, whatever. Having healthy communication about things that make you feel conflicted are life-giving. So the first thing is we are made differently. That's part of what causes the problem. The second thing that causes problems is there is a battle between flesh and spirit. There's a battle. And Paul tells the people of Galatia, he gave this list of what it looks like to not walk on the spirit. But he says this, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you're always blaming your spouse and how they are and who they are for why you don't do what you ought to do, grow up and take responsibility. Either you have conversations about those things or you do what you know you're supposed to do. We mature through that. We have conversations about that. And let's be honest, the majority of our knockdown, dragout fights are caused or fueled by sin. We're missing the mark. We're not obeying Christ. We're not loving the way God loves. And we, we have to start owning our own. Now, to be fair, some of your fights are caused by the sin of the other person, but the sin in response to sin is still sin. To sin in response to sin is still sin. To miss because they missed is still missing before God. 
right? Because the judge and jury is not yourself or your spouse, it's the Lord. And hear me, look, I know what I'm saying. You're like, oh, that, that must be nice, right? But we have a dance, don't we? Like the music kicks on, we strike a pose, and we get after it. That's our habit. And part of worship is going to the Lord saying, kill that in me. And to begin to lay out new patterns and new cycles and new flows with your spouse to say, I don't want to fight that way anymore. We're only destroying. We're not building up. We're only tearing down and deunifying. Let's build up. Let's try this differently. Let's fall forward together. The goal of conflict in marriage ought to be increased understanding and intimacy, not disunification. But when you let sin in every time you obey your flesh and you refuse to extend grace and ask for grace, it divides you. Every time you refuse to extend grace, not giving, giving them something they don't deserve, you're building a wall that's going to be very hard to overcome. Because at the end of the day, if one of you wins the fight, you both have lost. If one of you wins, you both have lost. And that starts in marriage and it goes to mom and dad and kids. It goes to friendships. But in marriage, you are one. So dealing with anger. Paul gives this verse, and it's a verse, these two verses that Stephanie and I have really tried to utilize. We failed, I, think, I can think of two times since we started living this where I went to ang- bed angry or I fell asleep angry or whatever, right? But by and large, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So three ways I want you to begin thinking about dealing with your anger. One, Keep a short account. Rodney Wu, my professor in seminary who taught many of the courses I, I took, told, told me that he gave, in, in view of 1 Corinthians 13, he told couples and people, you have two weeks to kind of sort through all this and bring it up and hash through it and everything else. But after that, if you haven't dealt with it that way, you're starting to, to, to just like bring things up and up and up again. Now, if there's a narrative being built along the way with pain, then in the appropriate context, you can bring up those things. But by and large, in the middle of a fight, when you start throwing grenades about other things people have done in the past and using their past against them, the things that Jesus Christ died for and rose again, that covers by the blood of Christ, you keep throwing those grenades, you're sinning. You're being destructive. Especially if it doesn't have context in the current argument. And I used to be the worst at that. I would forget things until the mad part of my brain was triggered. Guys, have you ever felt that? Like you haven't thought about something in a while, but that part of your brain gets exposed or you're embarrassed. All of a sudden you're like, and then this, and this, right? It's like a free-for-all. It's like a food fight. Ladies, learning to keep short accounts means that we need to learn to communicate and deal with conflict well to have a resolution so that we can have a standard place of coming together and moving forward. The second thing is we've got to commit to working through our anger before you go to sleep. Now, I'm not going to be a legalist about this. At least make peace. If you're with your spouse and you know that you're tired and cranky and you're not being reasonable, at least own that part. Look, I am for you. I am for us. I'm losing my mind. I'm tired and angry. And I'm going to continue to say things that don't help. 
Can we circle up in the morning, wake up a little bit early, have a cup of coffee or tea or something like that, and hash through this some more? It feels so right, doesn't it, to stay mad? Doesn't it? It feels so right. But it doesn't honor the Lord. Why? Number three, don't give the devil an opportunity to destroy your relationship. There's an enemy in John 10. It says, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus gives this promise, I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. Abundantly. The enemy wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your faith. And he wants to keep you immature. We can't let that happen. We can't. This thing that Dr. Vanderkay trains in and that I've tra- trained in conducting called the Prepare and Rich gives this idea of how to take a time out. Look, most of you that I've counseled and most of you that probably should get some counsel, the fighting or the lack of communication are the two primary things that are destroying your marriage. Maybe it's fueled with the fact that you're not daily walking with Jesus and reminding yourself whose you are and how you're called to be. But one of the greatest tips I've learned was how to take a time out. Have you ever walked away on your spouse when you're mad, just walk away? That's a bad idea. But taking a time out, and I want to be very practical really quick with you because some of you, you just need to hit pause. Maybe some of you need to talk to Dr. Vanderkay, and maybe some of you need your community group to hold you accountable and pray with you and love you, but as humans, they call it fight or flight, right? It kicks in, it triggers, and we either want to sit in and get, you know, fight through it and chew through it till it's done, and the rest of us want to pack our stuff and get out. So before we get to that place, the first thing we're going to do is agree outside of a conflict that it's okay to take a break. So not while you're in the middle of a fight. Pastor Casey said take a break. Time out. Don't do that. Maybe on the way home, at lunch, before you fight or anything else. And don't read far, too far into it. Say, hey, the pattern, I, I, don't, I, I don't feel like either of us feel very safe to have these conflicts right now. And so we're going we're gonna to call time out when we're getting ramped up and we're going we're gonna to take a break. And you agree upon that not in the middle of the fight because it's hard to agree on anything when you're fighting. Right? And so you say, hey, because we don't want to continue to tear down, we want to build up, let's start new healthy patterns. Guess what? When you and your spouse entered into this marriage, you bought a bunch of baggage from your upbringing. Some positive, some not so positive. Some clean laundry, some dirty laundry. In Jesus' name, stop tearing each other down. Stop. I'm saying to myself, I'm saying to us, I'm saying to our family, don't tear down, build up. But agree outside of conflict that it's okay to take a break. The second thing is start to learn when you need to take a break. So if you're feeling your heart rate go up, you're feeling like, I I need to get out of here, I'd be happier elsewhere, I'd be happier with someone else, I'd be blah, 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 why are they always wrong? They always, whatever, you you feel yourself getting that place, take a break before each other, even when you're against each other in an issue. But know what it is. For you, it might be when you start clenching your jaw. It might be when you're thinking obsessive negative thoughts. It might be when you're refusing to listen. Three, ask for a break and set a time limit. 
Don't hold the other person emotionally hostage by saying, I need a break, and don't give vision on what's next. 15 to 30 minutes usually is plenty to take some deep breaths and ask yourself the question, what do I want? So take some time to calm down in a healthy manner. You can find, like, some of the, some of the uh, Navy SEALs guys put, like, their breathing exercise on how they get calm before, like, they rush a, uh, a, like a compound or something. So, like, if those dudes can get calm, I'm sure we could figure it out by using their breathing exercises or something. Prayer. Prayer helps. God, I'm very mad. And then remember the cross. So was he. He dealt with it through Christ. So be angry, but do not sin. Pray, breathe, focus, and you ask yourself, what do I want? What is it that I want? What do I want from this conversation? What do I want from this conflict? I want to feel heard. I want to feel understood. I want to be considered. I want my own way. When you start saying that, you're being honest. At least you're confessing. You can start saying, I want what's best for our family. I'm concerned this isn't best for our family. You can go back to what you want, right? But if you let it go, like to the fight or flight thing, you start bringing up the past, bringing up bad things. You're like, you did this wrong. You spend too much money and you have a nose whistle when you sleep. Okay, that's just a, it's like a cage match at that moment. It's too far. It's not helpful. We've got to rethink how we engage. I'm not saying we can't have passionate dialogue. I'm not saying we can't, but let's not be harmful. Let's not destroy. Let's build up, even in conflict. And number six, when you come back, you resume the conversation aiming for understanding and reconciliation. You come back saying, we've got to sort this out. Help me understand where you're coming from. And there's just time you're not going to see things the same way. Men, when it says, lay down your life for your wife as Christ does the church, if her preference isn't biblically sinful, then you need to slow down and think through it. If you're not certain if it is or not, ask for time to pray through it. If it's bad for your family or harmful, then slowly take time to understand each other and explain why. Wives, sometimes your husband has to turn right on 1488 and get stuck in traffic. Sometimes he has to go the long way because he thinks in his small brain that it's faster. And sometimes we mess up and make bad choices. And I need grace and so do you. And in your marriage, if this foundation is not there, you might make it to 50, 60, 70 years. But you wouldn't experience the fullness that God has for you in the covenant of marriage. If you begin to understand that Jesus is honored when the result of our conflict is intimacy and unity, you will begin to experience the abundant life. It starts in the home. It starts with our friend, our spouse, our lover, we push through, we fight through, and when we cannot, we ask for help. There's no shame in asking for help. Ask for help sooner than later. I wish someone would come in for, for pastoral care and say, I think, I think we're too far gone, and say, like, no, you guys are too early. Go fight some more. You're really fine, right? I, I've never had that happen. Any of you other pastors who have been in here, or counselors, have come in and said, you know, we had a really bad fight. I think the wheels are coming off and say like, no, you had a fight. That was it. You guys are fine. No, it's never happened that way. It's always been our wheels are coming off. We're considering divorce or an affair or whatever, and then we need to ask for help. Don't wait till then. We serve the resurrected Christ who died and rose again to give us abundant life. And that's not just stuff and land. That's himself. 
Our marriages are a beacon of light of the gospel of Christ to the world around us. How we enter into conflict matters. After all, Jesus told his disciples, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Let's start redeeming love today. Let's start that in our homes. Let's pray.